welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are doing a very special excerpt edition, which means that we are speaking with a Canadian author. So we're very lucky to be joined by Tim Wynne-Jones. Tim, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. So Tim is here to talk about his latest book, which is The Starlight Claim, which is out in September, I think pretty much to coincide with the release of this episode, right, Joe? You betcha. September 10th, yeah. And YA readers, especially in Canada, but I think globally, will know Tim from all sorts of things, but our listeners might be very interested to know that The Starlight Claim is a sequel of sorts to Tim's huge, massive bestseller, The Maestro. So... You're by far, I will say, the most famous author we've had on the show to talk to. But even so, we'll ask you to open up by giving us just like a 30-second bio. Who is Tim Wynne-Jones? Ah, who, I'm trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> okay, well, uh, 30 seconds. Here it goes. I was born in England, and I ran away from home a couple of months before my fourth birthday with a tea cozy on my head. <laughs> this is important. And... I ended up in northern British Columbia. I'm not sure exactly how these two events are connected, but they are both <laughs> true. So I moved around a lot as a kid, uh, decided at the age of 11 that I was going to be a famous architect when I grew up. I m did manage to get into architecture school, but after three years, they kicked me out because they were afraid that if I designed buildings, people would die. So I joined a rock band and then ended up a writer. And again, I'm not sure how those two things are connected, but it worked out okay, and I've written 36 books. So it was not 30 seconds, it might have been longer. Sorry, I got distracted. That might be the best 30-second bio we've ever had on the show, hey, Joe? <laughs> Pretty darn entertaining. <laughs> So, Tim, your new book, as Brenda mentioned, is The Starlight Claim. Can you give listeners a quick logline of what it is about in case they may not be aware of it? Okay, sure, yeah. So, Nate Crow is uh, 16 years old, and he's uh, wrestling with the grief over the loss of his best friend. And so he heads up to the family's isolated cabin in the northern woods, it's winter, the snow is deep, and the last thing he expects to find is that two desperate men have taken over the family camp. Uh, Nate has no way of getting out and only one place to hide, and that place is somewhere he really doesn't want to go. Mm -hmm. I finished it just before we sat down to record today, and it's dark and it's gritty, but I think what I liked most about it is that the landscape is such a living character in the book, and you can really sense, like, your own connection. I mean, I read the afterword, so I'm, I'm going to assume I'm not misstepping here, but your own connection to this to this landscape oh, yeah. uh, is really comes through clearly in the text. It's beautiful. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, the, the reason I wanted to write a sequel to The Maestro was because I love that landscape so much. We we have a, 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 northern pl a place up on a northern lake. I mislead readers by giving it a different name because I don't want anybody else to discover this lake. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's... Uh, That's smart. It, yeah, no, but it's really, it's really uh, special. But by the time I got around to, to writing a sequel, 25 years had passed, and I realized that Burl Crow, the hero of the maestro, would be old enough to have a 16-year-old kid himself. So is this kind of an intergenerational sequel with mm -hmm. his son going up to, to this camp? And 
yeah. So it, that was a really interesting thing to try and do. Oh, fantastic. I think it works. I mean, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure that it works really well, but I really did enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners who are, you know, aspiring writers or getting into writing themselves. And so we like to give authors a chance to let them know what the process was. And you've kind of given us some broad brushstrokes. There was a tea cozy. There was a rock band. Yeah, that pretty well sums it up. Just get, yourself, <laughs> just get yourself a tea cozy, find a good band. And yeah, no, 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 I, I appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, we like to know how our authors got into writing, but also why specifically YA? Well, that's a really interesting thing because, um, as I said, I, I got kicked out of architecture school. I joined a rock band and I started writing songs for the band. And actually, apart from the band I was singing in, I was also in a folk duo with Rafi, who became famous on his, oh. his own. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, well, this is before he was writing, doing children's stuff, but we... We'd, did the coffee house circuit and I wrote the words and he wrote the music and we did a lot of stuff together and but gradually I realized that my writing was getting longer and longer and you know when a song has chapters in it it's really not a song anymore you know so <laughs> I loved writing the so songs that were stories you know that's why I kind of I have a real thing for country music because there's these great little sort of three-minute novels that you sometimes hear on country mm -hmm. scenes. anyway so I, I started writing longer and I did actually write three adult novels before I wrote, wrote a YA. And I, I think at that point, I suddenly went, I don't care about adults. <laughs> adults? Just, you know, they're just so boring. And uh, no, that's not true. But anyway, what I love about writing YA, and I, think, and I didn't understand this right away, but I think the thing for me was that I felt like YA novels are about getting a grip. You know, it's like by the mm. end of an, a, a YA novel, no matter how happy or sad it, it is, the character has gotten a grip on something. Whereas adult novels mm -hmm. seem to be more about letting go. And that really intrigued me and mm -hmm. I realized that that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. It's interesting that you've had such a storied career and I mean, you've talked a little bit about what the maestro meant and how you're trying to connect it to this new text. Yeah. What has the evolution of your writing been like in terms of, you know, you've got so many different books how do you I don't want to say like oh where do your ideas come from but <laughs> there's that age-old <laughs> question yeah no more along the lines of how has your writing itself evolved or what have you learned from writing all these different stories well you know the interesting thing about that is that I still wish every time I wrote that it was like the first time I, there's a process I like to follow which is to write a really fast first draft. I get an idea and then I just launch into it. I, I don't plot. I'm not I'm not able to write an outline. I just can't seem to oh, do it. Interesting. Well, so I just write and then if I can write it fast enough, then I look and see, okay, where did it go off track? What where do I have to go back to? Mm. I mean it would be much more sensible to write an outline. But I, I <laughs> if I write an outline for a book I think, eh, that's done. Finished. So I need the excitement of mm -hmm. not knowing what's going to happen next. And then, of course, obviously, sometimes you just go down some rabbit hole and before you know it, you're 12 chapters into something. You just, what? What is this? You know, so, but as I say, my first novel I wrote was an adult novel um, called Odds End. And I wrote it in six weeks and it was pretty well finished. And I went, whoa, this is great. Um, I mean, I had to, I had to revise, but it didn't need any much in the way of, you know, rewriting. And I would wish I could do that every time, and it very seldom happens. Usually, 
I go off track somewhere and I have to find out where exactly to come back in and, you know, and stuff like that. But the evolution has been, I think the big difference now for me is that I'm, I recognize much more quickly where I went off track. Sometimes I recognize it as I'm going off track. I go, wait, do not go <laughs> there. <laughs> Don't go down that road. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it gets rid of a lot of excessive writing. And I also, you know, being able to sort of clinically get right back into it at the place I wish to now go a different direction. And, 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 and so that's, that's the benefit. But I'll, t I'll tell you the truth. And anybody who's writing, uh, I hope this will help. I hate first drafts. You know, you, mm. it's, you're full of, you, you, I'm, I'm getting really moody and I don't sleep well. And I <laughs> get up in the middle of the night and write a paragraph and then I can't sleep anyway. But once I've gotten it down once, no matter how rough it is, I feel, okay, now the fun begins. And like for me, sitting down with a novel that I've at least got through once that's when I really love being a writer. Hmm. Yeah, I love how things come together in the editing. That's my preferred stage as well. Sure. Absolutely. I think so too. Um, yeah. I am a bitter and bad editor, I have to say. I'm really <laughs> frustrated in the revision stage. Um, okay, so I want to turn and talk about the Starlight Claim specifically since it's coming out and people want to know more about it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we noticed as we were reading it is that We've kind of got two things happening in the text. So on the one hand, it's like this almost noirish adventure story where our protagonist is meeting up with escaped convicts in this super dangerous situation. And then it's also this really psychological novel about grief and the trauma of losing a close friend and helplessness and fear. How did you balance those two they almost seem like they could be completely separate novels and yet they're working so well together here. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Okay, that's really interesting because to me, I think all the really, all really great suspense thrillers do this exact same thing. Like, for instance, I don't know if you know the movie Dead Calm, which is oh, yeah. an Australian movie and it's on a boat and it's Nicole Kidman and Sam Neill and they sailing in the middle and they hit a dead calm and then there's this insane psycho guy billy zane is the actor anyway on that level it's a thriller about two people stranded mm -hmm. on a boat but really it starts off with the accident where uh, their baby their child is killed in a car accident mm -hmm. so you jump right from that moment which is actually just happens i think in the credits i haven't seen the movie in a long time but you jump from that right at that moment you jump into them out on this boat in the dead calm and to me that's where the death of their baby has sent them. It's a realistic novel, so to speak, uh, excuse me, movie, but really it's as if they've earned this hell. I don't mean they've earned it because they did, they did anything wrong. I just mean they are in mm. a hell themselves and now they find themselves mm. in this hellish situation. And so in a way I feel like Nate has earned those convicts and i don't mm. and again i don't mean that he's been really awful or bad but he's living in a, a kind of living hell at the thought of what happened to his his uh, best friend and also in order to go up to the camp he's had to lie to his father and his he loves mm. his father tremendously and it's the last thing in the world somebody like nate would do would be to lie to Burl Crow. And so that hell, that thing that's, that is the suspense is all built around, is something that 
is sort of metaphorically a reaction to mm. what else has happened in his life, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. 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 I know that Brenna would be remiss if we didn't ask a bit of a follow-up question. So this is a very male-heavy or a male-dominated <laughs> book, and we're yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the gender performativity, because we've got convicts who are acting very tough and very gruff and and threatening and then we've got nate who is doing his best to stand up to them and put on a show like no i'm not a i'm not a small child i can hold Mm -hmm. my own i can go toe to toe with you so to speak so i don't want to give away anything to the readers but we have such a twist about dodge or at least um, a reveal about dodge towards the end of the book that i think ties in again to this idea of like how to be a man and how to resist some of these toxic elements of masculinity that are out there in the world. That's a really good point because the thing is, is part of the journey that Nate is on, although he doesn't realize it, is as he goes through his friendship and remembers moments, Mm -hmm. we see that Dodge is that toxic kind of male teenager. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's charismatic and he's very funny and he's daring in a way that Nate isn't. But Nate gets swept up in that. I know, I, I remember that kind of thing from my own teenagehood. It's like I wasn't a very daring person. But that always felt to me like I should be, you know. Boys are supposed to do this and blah, 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 and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. But, right. And so I think on one level this book is really a study of that. So it was a really, it was interesting and a little bit hard to write so that we could see why Nick, and why Nick, why Nate was so caught up in his friend Dodge. We totally get it on one level, and on another level we're going, oh, crap, now I see. This guy is... He's such bad news. <laughs> He's bad news. He's bad news. And and so the culmination of the story... I mean, it's, it's really interesting, because I think the story has two climaxes. One is, um, mm-hmm. is, is a physical climax. The other one is this much more important emotional climax of realizing finally what really did happen Mm -hmm. to Dodge. And Mm -hmm. that is this huge lesson. And it doesn't mean, well, I'm not going to say anymore because (laughs) let people come to their own decisions. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. And I love that he only gets to know that about Dodge from someone who, again, I won't give anything away, but someone who we might see as readers as being an unreliable source as well. And so there's so much for Nate to wrestle with in that moment. Yeah that I thought was really effectively done. Thank you. Okay, just one quick thing. What's really important to me is the unreliable character, as you say, and that's perfectly true, proves reliable in this one instance. The Mm -hmm. reliable Mm -hmm. friend, the best friend, proves unreliable Mm -hmm. in another way, if you know what I mean. So I love that. I love playing with that. It's like things are never just black and white, really. I mean, this is, in a sense, this is a very old-fashioned adventure story, but on another Mm -hmm. level, it's playing with that thing of right and wrong and good and Mm -hmm. bad, and it's never crystal clear, is it? And which is so much the period of young adulthood, right? Is like sorting these things out for yourself and realizing who to trust. And Now, Tim, you've got 36 books under your belt. So we often ask this of new writers, but we're going to ask it of you too. What has your experience been like publishing and seeing your books out in the world? I mean, the impact that your books have had on readers, you must hear about that all the time. 
Well, I, I do. I mean, it's been thrilling. Uh, it's been a great ride. It has, a, it has huge, there are, you know, huge valleys along the way, you know, dark periods where I didn't write for a few years and, and then had to just reinvent uh, what it was that made writing important. But I've had the chance to travel around the world. I've been to places I wouldn't necessarily have gone as a writer, you know, to mm-hmm. Australia and Japan and, and, and Europe. So it's it's been thrilling and and that and that's great. I mean I mean I guess I guess the best thing the best event ever was the reading of the Sky Dome with J.K. Rowling. Wow. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, Ken Opal and I were 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 her warm up act as if she needed one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a stunning and on some level very frightening thing because there was twenty twenty two thousand people there. It's actually in the Guinness Book of Records. Oh my goodness. It's in the wow. Guinness Book of Records as wow. the biggest reading ever, public reading. And so there are things like that, um, um, but there are, <laughs> there are many moments of quiet despair and many struggles along the way. You know, I was, I've been very lucky, and luck does play some kind of part in it, I think. But in between that, there are the periods where things go downhill for a while. You, since I've been published, I've written five novels that are just not ready for prime time or will ever be ready for prime time, you know. <laughs> so it's always a thing about remembering why it is you want to write. Yes, you want to be world mm. famous. Yes, you want this. Yes, you want that. But really, what is it you're doing when you sit down? If the joy isn't in the process, then perhaps you should, you know, take up something else. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Wow. That is a great story. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that we have as a mandate for this particular podcast is shining a light on Canadian authors and specifically Canadian YA authors, which is why it's so fantastic to get to chat with you. But we do like to pose this interesting national identity question to all of our interviews, which is, do you think that there's anything unique or particularly unique about being a Canadian writer? I really do think so, yeah. But what I think it really comes down to is that what is unique about being a regional writer. That is to say, when Mm, I I used to be the reviewer for the Globe and Mail, and I would read some novel set in the middle of Alberta or in Newfoundland or, or, you know, wherever. And I think this person is like a mapper. They're mapping out this country, this gigantic country we live in. But they're not going to try and tell us all about Canada. It's really not about Canada. It's about this little farmstead or this urban kid in Toronto or whatever. And so to me, it's it's more that than nationality. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nowhere mm-hmm. in, I think, in the entire book that I mentioned the word Canada. I'm talking about the boreal forest of northern Ontario, and which is a, a place that mm-hmm. is so quintessentially Canadian to me, the way the, the right. prairies are to somebody, you know, from Saskatchewan. So it's more like that. And I think, as you said at the beginning, place is a character in my books. I mean, it really... It really is, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of Canadian writers are really determined to show this is my Canada. This is where I live. And I love Mm -hmm. that. They're not trying to write a book that's set in New York, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's a very uh, unique Canadian thing. It's a great quality to have too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely, I mean, for me, I just kept coming back to the landscape in this book and just how beautifully evoked it is without being, you know, without feeling like you're being sort of lectured to. 
Yeah, I don't know how to describe it other than that. It's just really yeah, quite well, thank lovely. You very I really much. enjoyed it. It matters a great deal to me. So thank you. So we are a film adaptation podcast. So our last question, we always ask authors if they could see one of their books adapted to film, which one would it be and why? And, you know, do you have like a stunt cast or director in mind? Joe and I were both saying before we started recording that we could totally see curling up in front of a fireplace and the CBC on a Sunday night to watch an adaptation of The Starlight Claim. So, yeah, would you like to talk a little bit about whether you could see this text or any of the others? Yeah, no, I'd love to. <laughs> We've all got to admit, the truth is, we'd love to see our books made into movies. My first book, <laughs> my first book the, the one, Odds End, the adult novel, was made into a movie in Europe. And mercifully, oh. it, ne- it never came here because it's oh. awful. I, just, I don't like it at all. So oh, that no. was a really interesting lesson. And the maestro <laughs> has been signed up several times. Oh, really? And it's never, and I've actually had the chance to write a, a script for it, but it's gone through any number of people and it's never been made. So that's a movie I would like to see. And The Starlight Claim, is, I think, would be a great adventure story. But I think the book of mine that I'd most like to see is the most complex one, and that's The Emperor of Any Place. And it's oh. a big theme kind of story. It's set in World War II and it features a Japanese and an American soldier trapped on a desert island and having to deal with the consequences of this war and being ostensibly being enemies, but having a bigger enemy, and that's the island that they're actually living on. And it, it's a, it took a long time to write. It's also got monsters and ghosts in it, which I think is just, wow, I don't usually do that. But this one does have that. <laughs> so I think it would really work. And I'd love to see Ang Lee direct it. I'd see, I can't think of who had cast it. Oh, wow. But I'd love to see Ang Lee direct it because he just has this breadth of, oh, I don't know, wonderful cinematic sense of place. Mm. And we know that he can do a fixed location as well. We know we can do a very fixed location. You're absolutely <laughs> right. And in a way, that's exactly what I think is the, the island that is prominent in um, the Emperor of Any Place is like a boat. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So that's more or less the end of our questions. But if people want to find out more about you or access your writing, how would they find you online, Tim? Okay. Well, the best thing to do is go to my website, which is timwinjones.com and timwinaltogether-jones.com on there it'll direct you to my blog which is called Much Depends on Dinner and actually if they go to that now (laughs) they can see the most recent one is about the Starlight Claim oh fantastic and so that's a good place to start and I'm on Facebook there's three Tim Wynn Joneses but there's only me the other ones all both live in England so that's how to determine the difference (laughs) And yeah, so that's the best way to get in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. As I say, I really enjoyed the book. You described it as an old-time adventure story, uh, and it did. It felt almost nostalgic to read it, totally something that I could have read when I was a teenager. But I also really loved this element of really challenging ideas about masculinity. We did a podcast on The Maze Runner, which I found had just an utterly exhausting approach to masculinity. So this was nice because it was a real it's a good change of critical pace. reprieve. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. That's a great line. I love that. Exhausting. Men can be so exhausting. Oh, my God. Truly. I say that a lot on the show, actually. <laughs> Well, thank you again for joining us, Tim, and all the best of luck with The Starlight Claim, which comes out September 10th. Thank you so much, and it was lovely to be on the show. Thanks so much. Take care now. 
，拜拜。